This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Where do I begin on this thing with this uh, this arena and this proposal and this report that was supposed to come out uh, and it's been delayed? Now we're told the council won't even see the report until April now. Um, and uh, there's, I guess, a legitimate reason for that. The mayor and somebody else is going to be out of town when they initially said they were going to release it later on this month. But here's the, here's the, the nuts and bolts of this. Uh City councilors are ticked off, and, and a number of them expressed their anger and frustration yesterday about the fact that a lot of the details of this report, well, we, I, we assume they're details in this report, have already been released to to the media. Council hasn't even seen this thing yet, and some councilors are rather concerned that somebody else is driving the bus here when it comes to what's going to happen and who's going to do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I want to talk about the report, and I want to talk about what the recommendations probably are, but we also need to get into this idea about, uh, well, maybe losing control of this, as some councillors seem to indicate. Donna Skelly is one of the councillors who expressed some concern about this at the meeting yesterday. She, of course, the councillor for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain. Joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Donna. How are you doing today? I'm great. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, interesting to get your perspective on this. You, of course, being a former media person and, and uh, myself, who have been doing this for quite some time, from time to time, we would get a phone call or an email from somebody with some pertinent information. And, and as media types and as journalists, of course, we would report that stuff and endeavor to get this. So I'm, I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at the media for this. No, but, not at all. But my question is, who the hell's letting this information out? I have no idea. Uh, it's it, it can't really be counsel because you guys haven't seen this thing yet. No, we haven't. Seen, we do not have the report. We do not have the report, and that is part of the frustration. I think, in light of a lot of the stories that have hit the media lately, in terms of of secret pays, and and I'm not just talking about city hall. I'm talking about what we found out with the foundation, uh, the Mohawk Community Foundation, and and uh, St. Joe's Foundation. People want transparency. They want to know that their tax dollars are being spent wisely and that they know who is getting what. Well, this is, I'm not suggesting that, you know, there is, there, anybody has been paid secretly, but the report isn't being made available to counsel, at least not yet. And while it is being prepared, information is being leaked. Uh, that is part of the job of the media to find that information, but I just don't understand why we don't have a copy of it. My big concern, there isn't a real rush Nothing's going to happen in the next few weeks. But what's happening is information is being leaked and discussions are being had about potential future use of First Ontario Centre, all without council knowing what's in this report. Well, how frustrating is that for you? It's, it's somewhat frustrating because I will tell you that uh, I, I'm, and, and again, it's an assumption that, you know, why are we doing this? Yes, the building is 30 years old, and we do need to know what needs to be done to keep the doors open or not. But is there another ulterior motive? Is someone trying to suggest that let's go down the NHL road again? I don't think, I certainly, that has not been raised by any of the council members. So, and in personally, my, my own um, uh, view of that is that there isn't an appetite to, 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 head down the path of attempting to acquire an NHL team for Hamilton. So I'm not sure what's driving this report and uh, what's even in it. But it would be really nice to have access to it. Well, that that is out there. I mean, I, you're right. I haven't heard anybody on council this time around talking about it. 
Uh, they certainly were in the past, of course. We had uh, some other clandestine meetings that were being held in you know, little dark places in the hotels and things of this nature, and that's, that's, that's history. So let's set that aside for a second. But I'm not so sure that there's still not this feeling out there in the community uh, to make us, because I've heard the phrase more than once when, uh, when people were talking about putting this report together, NHL ready. And I, which it just angers me, and and listen, there's nobody be, you know more supportive of the idea Hamilton should have been in the NHL, been there, done that. You and I were both at the rally. Remember the, the "Let's Make It Seven rally? Yeah, I broadcast the show from there. You were you were yeah. seeing that event. We were we were there. We and the NHL. Listen, they made it seven. They just didn't make Hamilton the seventh. That's all. Exactly. So and, and the ship has sailed, as far as I'm concerned, and and we got to move on from this. But when I keep hearing comments about let's make this into a major league arena, what major league are they talking about? Exactly. And why are we making it into a major league NHL-ready arena? Again, very much like you, if a billionaire approached the city of Hamilton with a team in hand and money to build an arena, you know every single person at CHML would be in line to buy a ticket. But they're not going to start going out and doing what we did how many years ago, saying, let's have another rally, let's get in. We've got the building, now let's get a team. That, as you said, that ship has sailed. So this, these, these conversations and these news articles that say this is what it will take to make this 32-year-old building, NHL, uh, bring it up to NHL standards, I think is, is, is um, it's almost a misleading comment because council has not even considered that option. We're not talking about trying to get an NHL team. But that goes so back to your original point. Then who's driving the bus? I don't uh, you know, know. When, you, when you hired, uh, well, you didn't, but when the city manager hired Mr. Kajavsky to do this, and he, he brought these people together to pay for the report, uh, some people on council, I know some of your colleagues are asking questions like, yeah, okay, what's their interest in this? Uh, I'm, you know, uh, do they get first call, or re- first right of refusal on this? Are they investors in this? We don't know any of this stuff at this point. It has raised some potentially, you know, problematic optics. It, it's, it, who is, uh, well, what, what is the intent of this report? What was the criteria? And I don't want to throw Chris Murray under the bus. It, it wasn't, he didn't initiate this process. I believe it, there was a, um, a news article in the spec a number of months ago that, that indicated that this initial um, idea request came from the mayor who suggested to Chris Murray, our city manager, to hire um, the, the city lawyer, Jasper Kujawski, to go out and find funding sources to conduct this study. So Chris was really just following, following orders. But this was not a city council uh, initiative. So we were not the, the body that initiated this, that requested it. Um, but we do have it, which is wonderful, and I'm, I'm sure that it, it's, you know, it's, it's a professional, um, good report, solid report with solid findings. I just don't know what they are. And that concerns me because here we go again, as you said, that NHL rumor is out there simply because somebody has stated it's going to take this many hundreds of millions of dollars to bring it up to NHL standards. Well, why are we bringing it back up to NHL standards what is the point of that? We do have to have a discussion about the future of the building because Absolutely. it is aging. It is aging. And we need to know, are we going to maintain it just for two concerts a year? Do we want to level it and build something else? Do we want to sell it? What do we want to do? But that conversation has to be initiated by council. 
based on information brought forward by staff, and it needs to be very transparent and open in the public sphere because this is a building owned by the city of Hamilton. Donna, for those that love to stick to protocol and and, and doing it right, quote-unquote, uh, I mean, there's been some questions raised about this whole process right from the beginning. As you mentioned, uh, whether the mayor approached the city manager or Mr. Kajaski approached the mayor through the city, I, we don't know what the, 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 the timeline is on that. But invariably, when something like this happens, this was sole source. There was nobody that said, yeah, that's a good idea. We should see who's out there. They just arbitrarily gave it to Mr. Kajaski and said, run with this. And, and to his credit, yeah, he's, he's hired a great agency here, Brisbane Book, Banyan Architects, world-renowned for what they're doing. And you've got a report, which you have not seen yet. But it just seems as if some people are cutting corners here, and you have to wonder why and, and exactly what their interest is in this. Exactly. And again, it goes back to transparency. And we need to say thank you for the report. It's time that if we're doing anything with it, any future use of this building, and uh, whatever we do with the building, whatever money we spend, I think that needs to be pulled back in and uh, staff. This has to be directed by council and staff, city staff. It hasn't been. It's been outside our parameter. It's been outside our, um, our, our influence. And that has to, I think, it has to stop and it has to come back inside and let, I mean, this is our property. This is owned by the residents of the city, the taxpayers in the city of Hamilton. We need to take control of this future of this building. We can't just say, here's another. I know that uh, in one of the articles, um, Mr. Kajowski said he would like to continue with this, with this and, and perhaps keep the ball rolling, I believe is what he said, and uh, have his contract renewed. I don't know why. I'm not sure what... Keep the ball rolling in what direction? I don't know. And that's my, that's my fear. I think we need to pull it back and say, okay, <clears throat> once we see the report, let's just everybody take a breath and, and find out what we're going to do. But we, this has been being done behind the scenes, and I don't even know what's being done or what's being said, but it's time, I think, that, that the city get a handle of it and that council be made aware of what's in the report and that we take control of, of the future of the building. From a political standpoint here, uh, quite aside from you know people's desire to get an NHL franchise, and I've seen some social media stuff this morning again that says, yeah, we should go for it. No, uh, I don't know how many times they're going to get burned before you finally it. get the message. Uh, and to your point about the scenario about some uh, rich individual coming along says, I already have access to a team. Been there, done that. Uh, you know, Mr. Balsilli almost bought the Pittsburgh Penguins, almost bought the Nashville Predators, tried to buy the Arizona Coyotes. T- three times he's tried to move a team here, and the NHL Ron has blocked it. They, 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 Joyce, Ron Joyce probably has the most solid bid, and we lost to Ottawa. Yeah. So and on that, it goes. But from a, yeah. from a political standpoint, though, uh, I, I don't need to remind you that this is probably the most challenging budget process this council has gone through in the last 25 or 30 years for, for a variety of reasons. Do you have the money to do this? Do you have the no. money to invest in? And, and you know the province and the feds are not going to come to the rescue here because they do not invest in arenas. They don't Absolutely. do that sort of thing. No, we do not have the money, and that's why this is being, you know, it's landing on our lap without being initiated by um, by council, and, and perhaps there's another, t- I don't know, but I don't know the status of the building, but perhaps there are another 10 years left, and, and then we can deal with it. Or perhaps there is somebody out there in the private sector that says, look, we're willing to invest millions into this property, or we would like to buy it, or whatever. But let's 
Let's just pull back and let's figure that out. I really don't think there's an appetite. Again, I don't want to say I'm speaking for counsel. I'm not. But I have not heard. We have not had conversations at all, I can tell you that, about going after an NHL team. So bringing it up to NHL standards has not been discussed. I don't know. I would almost like to take that off the table. But we have to have that conversation, and we haven't. There isn't money in the pot to spend at bringing this facility up to so-called, uh, you know, 2017 NHL standards. There may be opportunities to work with the private sector. Let's pull it back and let's deal with it now at council. Well, and the private sector is an interesting little twist on here, and, and the fact that some private sector people put money into the report is rather interesting. Uh, does that mean that they're interested in being investors in this? Uh, and, and at what cost? I mean, because you and I both know that uh, if a private sector entity decided, hey, we'll build the arena, don't you worry about that. Uh, if they're going to own it, they're going to pay taxes on it. And that's that's somewhat problematic. I, I don't think you could sell First Ontario Centre right now for a buck because of the tax implications that a private sector owner would have. And if you want to enter into a private-public partnership, well, what's that going to look like? And how much money is the, That means the city's still going to have to pony up some kind of money. Exactly. And is it an arena? Is that what they want to do? I don't know. Again, if, if and, and I'd love to have these conversations, but they have to be open. We have to make sure that people are aware that the conversation is taking place. A lot of stakeholders have to be invited. We can't single out certain people. Perhaps there are a number of potential investors that would like to come in. I don't know. Maybe level the building, maybe put up something different or renovate the building and put in, you know, for the for an OHL team. Whatever. But we we're not having that conversation again and I know it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but we need to take control over what's happening with this building and, and the conversation surrounding it uh, to allow somebody who isn't being directed by council, who isn't elected, and, and uh, to just go out and, and say, you know, here are some options and this is where I'd like to take this. That's wonderful, but you need to do it with the direction of council, and that isn't happening right now. Well, you just touched on something else. I mean, there is a major tenant there right now. And granted, okay, a junior A team doesn't pay as much rent, and the, and the, the revenue just isn't there as much as there would be for an NHL franchise or an NBA franchise or anything right. else. But he's a but, wonderful tenant and a great community builder. And, and I incredible. Will tell you that. And I feel badly for Michael Andlar right now because I feel like he's getting you know he's in the middle here. Mm -hmm. uh, he's he's looking to do something to try to upgrade the facility for his hockey team. Uh, the city seems to want to pass the buck on this onto the private sector. I don't know where they're going. He doesn't need a 17,000-seat arena. And and I guess the, the, the $250 million question we've got right now is, does Hamilton need a 17,000-seat arena? Exactly. And, uh, we again, let's, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it in the open. Let's, if, if we want to go down that road. Uh, it's a tough year to be having this discussion, to have this thrown in our lap. We could have sailed through this this year without even talking about the First Ontario Centre, but this report is coming forward. So I do think it's time to look at it and what do we want to do with it. And maybe it's not something this year, but let's put a plan in place in year two or three. We could go back out. How would it fit it, uh, something in different in that 
that space? Uh, how would it fit in our future plans for the downtown core? But again, bring it back into council, bring it in and let staff, uh, let it be part of a, a, a bigger discussion with more people involved and keep it transparent. That's really important. And I think that's when people get angry is when um, things are happening and they don't feel that they feel, and there may not be, but there's this perception because uh, we're not part of it, that something else is going on behind the scenes. And we can't have that. We need to be in very inclusive when we have these discussions about property that taxpayers own. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Transgender news in the uh, in the news, in the media, uh, f- sometimes for all the wrong reasons over the last couple of days. Of course, uh, uh, the the news that President Trump has decided to withdraw federal support, of course, for uh, transgender laws, that's uh, somewhat problematic, obviously, in many, many different ways. And uh, as a result, of course, there's been more violence towards transgendered in the United States. Uh, just this uh, morning, we saw a story that Two transgendered women were killed in New Orleans in the space of about 48 hours. And there is, sadly, things like that happening in other parts of uh, the southern states specifically. And that's problematic. But uh, we have our problems here at home uh, when it comes to transgendered rights. And we've talked about some of these in the past. Uh, I was alarmed to hear, as a, a number of other people did over the last little while, that Hamilton uh, is a desert when it comes to transgendered health care. Uh, as a matter of fact, oftentimes... Uh, people have to go to other communities because the services and the doctors that could be and should be doing things in this community to assist the transgender community isn't happening. But that could be changing with uh, some news today uh, about a Hamilton transgender trans health coalition that's been going on. Joining us to talk about this is Cole Gately. Cole is an MA in adult education and community development and works in Hamilton as a community-based educator. Uh, Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Cole. How are you doing today? Good morning, both. Uh, well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks very much. Uh, lots of stuff on our plate these days. I want to talk a little bit about this network and this. Uh, I want to talk about health care for, for transgender people. And I was alarmed to hear about actually how there seems to be a real deficit of that in the Hamilton area. What's going on here? Well, I think that there's, you know, there, um, I think that there's been not very much prominence of trans people um, in necessarily, you know, in the media, you know, et cetera. And we know that trans people face barriers to healthcare, to um, employment, to other services because of being trans and because living in a in a society that uh, is transphobic in lots of ways. So um, so there, 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 we do have, like, one of the, you know, most famous trans doctors in town, in the world, actually working in Hamilton, uh, Karis Massarella, who actually opened up... Um, a clinic in St. Catharines at uh, Quest Community Health Centre a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, she's there once a week, and um, she has like a, a, a wait list right now, so that means referrals are closed. And she has about a thousand patients on her roster who are all trans, many, most of whom are from Hamilton. So a few of us, uh, you know, I'm friends with Harris, uh, Dr. Masuela, and we were talking about we need to, you know, increase the capacity or you know develop the capacity in Hamilton to provide good quality trans health care. I think a lot of the problem has been that people or doctors, physicians, etc., have felt that there's an extraordinary amount of mental health support that needs to be in place, etc., when that's actually not the case. Often, you know, um, trans people, if they are facing uh, mental health issues, it's often a result of facing discrimination and stigma and uh, social exclusion. 
So when we ha- when we actually reduce the barriers or get rid of the barriers altogether for people to access healthcare and other services, then um, people's outcomes are much better and people are much happier, and um, and then they can just get on with their life. But one of the things that exacerbates the, the stress that, that could happen as a result of that, though, Cole, is, is lack of, of resources uh, for things like hormone uh, prescriptions, uh, transitioning, things of this nature. I mean, if, if there's no medical assistance to help people go through that, uh, that's only going to increase those chances of, of people, you know, getting extremely frustrated and stressed out. Yes. I mean, there there is, um, I mean, I think that the there are, you know, there's lots of, there's hormone um therapy out there, etc. It's financially uh, prohibitive for many people. Trans people face, um, you know, barriers to employment, uh, etc. As I was saying before, so there is a there are financial barriers there. OHIP does cover, um, you know, surgeries, etc. Uh, basic surgeries. Um, it people who are uh, living on very low incomes, like on Ontario Works or ODSP, can get some coverage for hormone, but there are other hormones that aren't necessarily covered by the Ontario Drug Plan. So, yeah, there are financial barriers for sure. And there's also, uh, there are barriers around um, physician knowledge and family physician knowledge. You know, many family physicians just feel a little bit intimidated. There's very, very little education happening in medical schools around trans health care. You know, there might be, you know, if there's a trans medical student, they might lead a tutorial for an hour. That might be the only kind of um, training that doctors get. So there are multiple barriers based on, um, you know, multiple factors. And it's all got to do with just not really knowing. But there are, there's lots of education out there through the Sherborne Health uh, Centre in Toronto. It's all online education for physicians. There's workshops being put on. There's online uh, protocols for transitioning people. So there's really no excuse for family physicians to not um, get on board and really as Dr. Massarella has said on multiple occasions caring for trans people isn't any isn't really any different from caring from for other people who aren't trans. But that's a perception that that some physicians may have that there is a difference then and there's that reticence I guess to to even undertake something like this and and that's got to be frustrating. Yeah yeah it is frustrating I mean my myself um my doctor is very, you know, is great, and uh, I. But I'm a, I'm an educated person. I'm a trans person myself. I'm, I'm educated. I've, I've read lots of literature. I do activism, and so I, when I went to my doctor, this was about ten years ago to transition. Um, she didn't really, she didn't really know very much. I was the first trans person she'd uh, had under her care. So what I did was I printed off a bunch of stuff from the Sherman Health center and I took it to my appointment with her so then she read that stuff and she um, got a little bit of support from you know going online etc and um, and it worked out well but I do have a lot of privilege and I'm able to advocate for myself and I'm able to you know get what I need but there are lots of other people out there who have faced way more barriers than I have Uh, Trans women, for example, face, you know, uh, more barriers than trans men for various reasons. And, um, you know, if you're not, if you're socially isolated, you're, um, you know, you don't have much income, you've had, uh, you know, you're experiencing trauma from um, growing up in a hostile society, then you might not have all the wherewithal to be able to advocate for yourself. So we want 
doctors. We do have a really great uh, bunch of doctors that have joined the Hamilton Trans Health Coalition, and um, uh, they're very willing to learn and to learn and collaborate with trans people who are going to be under their care. Call for those doctors that decide they want to get on board here and try to assist in this. Are the resources, is the information available for them to, to get up to speed on some of these issues? Yes, there are, the Trans Health Coalition is, uh, we're still in our beginning stages, but there are, um, there are doctors who are on that coalition, we've been meeting since the late summer, um, who are willing to do consultations, willing to collaborate with other family physicians who already have uh, trans people under their care, um, willing to do phone consultations. Dr. Massarella is uh, also available to consult with physicians. And, um, and as I said, there's uh, education out there through um, Sherborne Health and the Rainbow Health Ontario. So there are quite a few resources to be able to um, get this going. And we're, we're just trying to spread the word amongst the physician community as well as the trans community um, and the larger community that um, there is help and support out there. And it's not actually, once you start doing the work, it's not, uh, I mean, I'm not a doctor myself, so I can't speak to specifics, but it's not an extraordinary, um, you know, knowledge base that doctors need to know. It's just something else that they need to learn about, which they, they're constantly reading anyway, because everyone who comes to them has is an individual and has different um, issues that they're dealing with. Cole, what about the stigma that's out there? And I mean, I mean in a much broader sense now, societally, not just uh, within the medical community, uh, because it seems as if some people are addressing that right now. But, but it's it's been somewhat problematic. And you've talked about some of the uh, some of the discrimination that goes on in the workplace. Uh, some of the, it, I mean, it happens in public places. I mean, we've seen evidence of that. We've heard stories about that. Uh, is it getting any better? Um, you know, I. I uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I hadn't read about what's happening in New Orleans. I mean, I do think that we're living in a, a, a time right now where people are kind of mistrusting of each other and people are scared to to really, you know, build relationships. And uh, we're, you know, we are living in this, I mean, thankfully we're not down south of the border, but we are still affected by what's going on south of the border and in other countries as well. And, you know, in Canada, is impervious, obviously, discrimination happens here as well. So I think that it's getting better insofar as, I mean, I'm an educator. I've been going out there doing lots of education with uh, local uh, social service agencies, with their staff around how to, um, you know, how to work with trans people when we live in a system that requires people to be male or female. Like I work in homelessness, so shelters are made for men and made for women. And um, I think that society needs to get itself up to speed with the sort of um, multiple multiplicity of um, gender identities that are, that are just coming to the forefront. So I think that things are getting better insofar. I think education is the way to go. And there are people being educated out there. I've, I've educated, you know, hundreds of people at this point. And uh, they're all working in uh, social services and healthcare, and everyone is very, very open to um, to learning this stuff and wants to sincerely make a difference and make sure that when trans people are coming for service that they're getting as much dignif- dignity as everybody else. So I think it is getting better, but I I think that overall in society we still need we're still dealing with lots of um, stigma 
um, even in Hamilton, with um, the uh, stigmatizing posters that were put up in bus shelters last year or yeah, last summer. Um, there are still people out there who want to insist that uh, trans people are somehow other and are somehow um, not as human as everybody else, but that's uh, a mythology that we absolutely want to be resisting. And uh, I think that there's lots of lots of allies out there who are willing to take a stand in, in support of trans people. Well, and again, because of some of these misguided myths that are out there, and, and by the way, just to your point about the uh, the two um, murders in in New Orleans, uh, the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs uh, has responded, they say, to seven reported killings of transgender women of color in the first couple of months of the year. And that's just in the States. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and, and some people want to try to draw a parallel to that between some of the policies of the new administration. I, I don't know that there's necessarily any, any truth to that. I, I don't know that it was always there anyway, and it's sadly... But it's, again, because these, these myths that are perpetrated, that, that uh, for instance, the transgender people are in some way are, are, are predators and, and, you know, to be feared. And uh, as long as that's out there, uh, we're going to have problems like this. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the thing about predators, et cetera, you know, people, the people who are most represented as um, assaulting women and children are 95% of people who assault women are um, heterosexual men so um, and not trans people. So we really need to sort of, we actually need to go with the facts and the people who are most vulnerable um, in a social setting or in a, a public space when there is a trans woman in that space is the trans woman. She's the most vulnerable person. Uh, she's facing so much stigma. You know, Predators. We need to talk about. We need to talk about who actually are the predators, and we need to look at evidence, and we need to not make up stories, and um, and spreading fear amongst people um, who have not very much knowledge and are getting their their they're getting their information from the media, and from you know you know people who have loud, loud voices who have a lot of privilege who want to um, take us down somehow. So I think that we need to really look at the evidence and, and see that actually, you know, when we see in the first two months of the year that seven women of color, we also need to look at the intersections and say, you know, it's racialized trans women who are being um, targeted. That's also um, an issue of race and class, I would say, and not just gender identity. And so when you put all these layers on top, you're, you're looking at, you know, when we're looking at seven trans people have been killed in the first two months of this year, in the U.S., and they're all women of color. Have we heard about, you know, seven cisgender people being killed by trans people in the first two months of the year? No, we haven't, because it hasn't happened. So I think we really need to look at the evidence and stop making up stories that are um, putting trans lives in danger. I know so many trans people who are absolutely amazing, um, caring, dignified people, and, um, you know, I really... I get, you know, I'm even a bit emotional right now about um, the level of, of violence and stigma and uh, and uh, lies that are being said about trans people. Well, those so st those statistics, yeah, the statistics, as you mentioned, Cole, totally contradict the mythology that's going on out there. But, but you know, and you've seen this happen, uh, and you, you and I have talked about this in the past as well, but some people just don't let, you know, the facts get in the way of a good rant. And yeah. and they're just going to go focused on this too, but but there is a I think a greater number of people that can be positively impacted by getting information out there about the truth about what's really going on. Yeah, 
I think so for sure. And uh, I I do think that you know when you know if you know people out there who are wondering about trans people and you know are not really sure. I mean, go on the internet. There's lots and lots of trans people are out there um, telling their stories. Um, you know, get some education. Um, you know, think about the 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 barriers that might exist where you live or where you work. And just think about, like, what do we need to do to... I think that the best thing to do to to change people's minds is to actually talk to trans people and, and, you know, start learning about what kind of of issues people are facing and what kind of lives people have. I mean, everybody has a a story, you know, a life story, and um, there's lots and lots of richness in building relationships and having conversations. and, And I think that once you start talking to trans people, you're going to have to... Start understanding. Well, I really like this person, and they're they're um, you know they're making a lot of sense. So maybe I need to alter my my um, perceptions about trans people or my assumptions about trans people. So I think that you know really um, you know just sitting down and understanding that stigma and discrimination are um, and and myths and um, lies are not the way to sort of inform ourselves. And you know we need to think about human rights. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we've heard of pop-up patios for some restaurants and uh, pubs, etc. in the uh, downtown, downtown core. Actually, that looks like that's going to be expanded this year, which is a good thing. But how about a pop-up park right in the middle of the downtown? Uh, it looks like it's about to happen in the uh, Beasley neighborhood, in a very contentious area of the Beasley neighborhood that we've been talking about for quite some time. To uh, talk about exactly how they've addressed those concerns and the problems and, uh, and a possible short-term solution and maybe even a long-term solution, uh, we welcome Michael Borelli, who is the treasurer of the past president and co-chair of the Beasley Neighborhood Association, to the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Michael, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Hi Bill. Thanks for having me. You're a classic example of somebody who's given lemons here and you're making lemonade out of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that uh, downtown area is changing quite a bit, and uh, obviously we've all heard about some of the troubles that especially that block is having, but uh, I think this is a fantastic idea to have a pop-up park down there and get things ready. I mean, there's no replacement for the full deal, but um, to get things ready and get people thinking about what a, a real park might look there, I think it's great. Well, listen, in a perfect world, and uh, and you guys, if, if anybody deserves it, the park should have been there a long time ago. I mean, this is uh, the, the way that council has handled this thing has got to be frustrating for you. Well, I mean, it's been on the books since 2010, um, and to be honest, I mean, we've played a part too. We, we are getting some... Uh, Nice new new redevelopments down at Beasley Park at McLaren Park as well. So um, we sort of knew that uh, this might be pushed off a little bit, but I think time is uh, is now here. I mean, you can see the crane ho- uh, hovering over that area downtown. New McMaster facility. Try to get into a restaurant on uh, King William on a Friday night, and uh, I think you see that a lot has changed down in Beasley, especially down in that area. No so, kidding. Uh, like I said, it's not a it's not the real park, but it's only 18 spots, and I think that's a, a nice foot in the door, and it's something that we can get residents and visitors alike to start talking about what uh, what should the real park look like. Yeah, and, and by the way, to your point, uh, the, the upgrades they've done on Beasley have just been remarkable. I drive by there a lot. Uh, uh, my wife's office is just around the corner from there, too, so I see this area, and, and from where it was to where it is right now is incredible. And I guess, you, you know, the old adage, you can't have it all at once, so you had to make a, a prioritized decision. But some of the some of the, the events that have occurred, I guess, uh, over at this other place here uh, in the last little while, uh, that, speci- that specific corner with the nightclub and a few other things have really kind of put this back on the front burner, haven't they? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I don't live uh, nearly as close to the Filmworks loft 
as the residents there, and, and I'm sure you've heard very passionately what they feel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Certainly we have. They've come out to our meetings. I mean, there are members of the BNA, but they've come out to a number of meetings and spoke about what's going on there. And, uh, I mean, there's no denying there's a, a negative attention attracted there. Um, we haven't heard anything from the owner indicating they're willing to address the issues brought forward by the neighbors. In fact, I mean, we haven't really heard anything from the owner at all. So, I mean, if you ever get manage to get them on your show, Bill, I'll be listening with interest. But, We've tried. Uh, <laughs> as a taxpayer, I mean, I start to wonder what's the cost of the club and police time responding to incidents, conducting investigations compared to the property taxes it pays. So uh, we, uh, the BNA, back in June, sent a letter to our councillor, Jason Farr, uh, saying, you know, move on the expropriation. This is something that uh, I think the time is there, and uh, let's get that real park. This is a, a part of a bigger plan, and, and it's something that we probably should talk a lot more about here, about what's going on downtown. And we talk about, you know, let's get people moving down there again. Uh, and that's important, and that's starting to happen. I mean, as you know, Michael, the downtown is actually one of the fastest rising uh, residential areas right now, and a lot of it's condo development, and that's a good thing. It's working, and people are, whether it's the the lofts that you were talking about or some of the ones over by uh, closer to Bay Street, it's a good thing. Yeah. But the, the go ahead. So I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, this is part of a, a couple of plans. I mean, there's one, the, the city, the downtown secondary plan uh, that has had that park on the book since 2010. But uh, it's also part of the BNA's neighborhood plan. We're one of the neighborhoods in Hamilton that uh, puts together a resident-led plan, and we just renewed ours just last month. Uh, you can see that at our website, ourbeasley.com. But, I mean, go to Google Earth, take a look at that uh, area, and you immediately see how much of the industrial path to Hamilton's been paved over with asphalt. So replacing blacktops with green space, with parks, and also with development to get people down there, that's all part of the city's plan. That's what residents want to see, too. And um, I, yeah, I'm very optimistic that this is a move in the right direction. Well, and it's it's something that needs to be corrected. And I'm glad you brought up the idea about the asphalt because it's something that it, you don't notice it until somebody brings it up. And then you look around, and, and you, especially in that area, especially in the Beasley neighborhood, Michael, and you say, where's where's the green space? Obviously, there's Beasley Park, and that's wonderful. That, mm-hmm. but, but that's been there for quite some time. Uh, and, and in a related issue, I mean, I go all the way back to when I was on city council. One of the more contentious issues was what to do with St. Mark's Church property mm-hmm. on Bay Street. And, and and there were some people that wanted to develop it. We said, look, there's no green space for those people there. I mean, there's you want something. You want be, some. You want to see grass. You want to see plants. You want to see flowers. Uh, it's part of neighborhood development. And uh, there was a time when we all had that idea that no, no, pave over everything. We need parking spots. Uh, all this sort of stuff. I think we're smarter than that now. But to try to 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 pull back and and to try to fix some of those problems is somewhat problematic because uh, space is at a premium. That's true, and, and the beautiful thing about development nowadays is that, I mean, you don't have to lose the parking when you lose the blacktop. I mean, we had a, a developer who came out to our BNA meeting just last month, and he brought along uh, David Premi with him to talk a little bit about um, a development that he wants to uh, pursue just uh, about, about a block away from the proposed park. Um, he's looking at a, potentially a tower there. And the parking would be built all within the building. So, I mean, there's no net loss of parking. It's just having people move down there. Um, and it's sort of an exciting thing for people who have, especially the residential, um, the residents that have lived around there for a long time that have sort of put up with poor urban design and lots of open areas and um, the safety issues that come with that. I mean, it's exciting to start talking about having people move there and people wanting to live in Beasley. And we, we're seeing that a whole lot more in the past five years. It's it's pretty incredible. Well, I mean, I've seen this and you've traveled around. I mean, even when you go to places like Boston and New York and Chicago and you think, well, these are great big, huge cities. But somebody in their wisdom back in those days did make allotment for green space, even in Manhattan and, and, and in some of the areas down in Boston. We all know what the Boston Common, et cetera, the yep. public gardens. But even in some of the other areas, they, they've always 
always set aside some green space. We didn't we weren't a very good we didn't do a very good job of that back in the day. Uh, so when you get an opportunity like this, we really have to take full advantage of it. That's right. And I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's also a resident nearby, and he sort of likes the idea of, I mean, once uh, that full park is in there, and, you know, the pop-up park being the, the beginning of that, but uh, once that full park is in there, you're going to have this diagonal sweep across that part of downtown of green space that is a perfect way for people to bike across, to walk across, uh, get down to the uh, business districts, to the tourism districts around King William and the International Village. Um, so, I mean, it really does become a whole lot welcoming, more welcoming, not just for residents, but for visitors downtown, people staying at the hotels, the new hotels down there, and uh, for people wanting to come out, have a, have a dinner at a nice place, and then go and uh, see a show. Well, it's, uh, it's also a place where people are starting to work downtown again because of some of the relocations that have gone on. And you know, I mean, it is going to get milder here eventually. <laughs> Spring will come, and, mm-hmm. and, and summer will follow. And people like to sit outside and, and have their lunch if they possibly can on a nice day. And there's not a whole lot of opportunity for them to do that in that neighborhood. That's absolutely correct. I mean, my sister, she just moved from Vancouver, just bought a place in Hamilton, sight unseen because of the, the high cost of living there and wanted to uh, get back to Ontario. And, uh, you know, she works a few blocks away from that. And uh, she's the type of person who really does enjoy that type of lifestyle, go out for lunch, grab something nearby, sit in the park, and then get back to work. And uh, I think a, a lot more people coming downtown are, are enjoying the amenities and not just parking going into the office, you know, eating at their desk, and then leaving. I think the success of those lunches on the Gore in the past years have been really uh, a testament to that as well. Well, and we've seen this when we've talked to some of the folks that are moving in, whether it's at the Connaught Project or, or the one right across the road, of course, at, uh, at John and Rebecca, where people are looking at this and, and, uh, and deciding, you know, we, we want green space. We need green space. That's part of, that's part of the lifestyle that we want, and, and so the city's trying to play catch-up here. I, before I get into the long-term plans, because I do mm-hmm. want to talk to you about that, about what the city needs to do there, mm-hmm. explain to me how this pop-up works. I, I'm really intrigued by this. Well, so uh, council has to ratify that motion that they uh, brought forward, I believe, at the next meeting, and that'll give staff the authority to meet with us and work together on a submission to the McNally Foundation. So uh, the McNally Foundation is a charitable foundation. Um, They have a vision very close to the BNAs, which is provide parks and outdoor places that uh, give opportunities to explore and enjoy nature, but also to build communities. So um, if that successful council will be uh, applying with council's help or with, sorry, city staff's help, uh, for uh, a grant there, and then uh, from there we'd sit down with city staff, and that's the beauty of this um, of this particular proposal too. Is that the only thing that the city gives up here is some staff time to sit with residents, sit with the BNA and our partners, and that includes businesses around the the area as well. Talk about what type of um, amenities we want to see. Nothing permanent, you know. There might be planters, benchers, all this stuff could be taken back out again. But it'll give people, um, you know, some ability to give input into what people might enjoy at a pop-up park in the summer, as you said, um, when uh, that area is really booming. And, uh, you know, there's no reason now you can't go and have a, some, a nice meal down in King William, walk over to the park and enjoy the sunset and uh, go enjoy uh, downtown Hamilton. Sure, get your coffee to go. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like, Michael, as if you guys are really working with a blank canvas here. I mean, you're starting from square one. You can design this. You can decide what can and can't go in there. Well, certainly, I mean, there's going to be limitations. We sure. know there's limitations associated with the uh, motion that uh, council passed there. But, um, yeah, I think it really is going to be a, a real blank canvas from the point of view, you know, what's attainable down there, what uh, type of grant are we dealing with, uh, and the costs uh, of, of those types of amenities. But I'm hoping at the same time, you know, I don't like reinventing the wheel and doing things twice, but we spent uh, redeveloping our neighborhood plan over the past 16 months talking to many, many residents. So we have a good re- uh, network of um, 
residents and people with a vision for what they want to see down there. And um, it'll be really interesting to talk to them, not just about the pop-up park, but about what aspects of that pop-up park work, what they don't work, and what we want to see carried over to the full block park when it uh, starts to be designed in 2018. I'm sure you realize, and probably many people in the in the community, in the neighborhood realize this too, that, that, that you guys are going to actually serve as probably as, a, as a, a pilot project. I mean, if this works in your neighborhood, and I don't see any reason why it can't, uh, I can see a lot of other associations and neighborhoods saying, hey, look, give us some of that action. Oh, I certainly hope so. I mean, uh, I th- we've had a lot of really good, I mean, the BNA, we've been for the past five years very consistently advocating to the city and especially our councillor, um, you know, let's move some of this black asphalt into green space. And, uh, I mean, Councillor Farr has been very responsive, very happy and uh, helpful in getting us um, some movement on that, especially, you know, behind Christchurch Cathedral, there's a city-owned parking lot that will be developed into a, a residential tower there. And uh, also the city was very helpful in helping uh, defend the principles of the secondary plan when um, Hamilton Health Sciences was trying to expand their parking lot into residential areas. So uh, I know the other neighborhoods around there have learned lessons from that entire process, and they're seeing the opportunities that uh, could they can move forward with, not just with our councillor, but with their councillors as well across the lower city. This has really been transitional the last four or five years for your neighborhood, hasn't it? Oh, I can't even tell you. I mean, it is, it, it's shocking, and um, I have to say it's a little distressing, too. I mean, I don't want to... It's not all roses. I mean, the main thing, and it's something that I've spoken about very passionately with some of my neighbors, is that we're starting to see people move in, but um, there's not a whole lot of um, certainty about where people are moving out to. And a lot of our neighbors, including those that uh, participated in the Hamilton Downtown Mosque, which just moved into the central neighborhood a couple of years back, mm-hmm. and um, our other sort of uh, you know neighbors that um, were previously living in Beasley because of the affordability factor, starting to get pushed out. Um, you know, I also sit on uh, the board of the Hamilton Community Land Trust, and that was something that came out of the Beasley Neighborhood Association in order to try to uh, protect some of the land downtown, not just for green space, but for affordable housing and for places where um, the folks that have lived in Beasley for generations can, can still find a place to, to be included. Well, in a philosophical level, we've always had this discussion about gentrification, but there was always, I think, in the back of our minds, Michael, yeah, but that's never going to happen in Hamilton. Uh, yeah. and, and, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it happened, and it happened fast. Yeah, it, went, it, it just like it blew in like a storm overnight, and now it's it's an impact in, in Beasley. It's obviously with some of the development that's going to be happening down by the waterfront. There's some concerns about what's going to be happening there. And, and and we need to be aware of the fact, and you just hit on it, that there are an awful lot of people that have lived there for generations yeah. in those neighborhoods, and they don't want to leave. That's right, and we have to find some way. I, I mean, you know, when we were doing our planning, the number one thing people wanted to talk about in our new neighborhood plan uh, was Parks and Rec. The second most, and I'm talking like very, very closely behind it, was diversity and inclusion. And that's everything from making sure that, you know, everyone feels welcome in Beasley and downtown Hamilton, but that also ensures that, uh, or making sure that there's a place for people uh, to live, to participate, and um, that they're not pushed out and they're not socioeconomically displaced to uh, other parts of the city. Because I I think it is the difference and the accepting nature of Beasley that makes it a a place where people want to live. And um, we've certainly seen the people moving in, a lot of people sort of, Economic refugees, if you will, from uh, from Toronto. They're not, you know, not poor. <laughs> I've, I've never heard it put like, like that, that before. <laughs> well, they can't afford to go an eight hundred thousand dollars semi in Toronto, and they come to a place like Beasley or Corktown or anywhere down in Ward Two and Ward One, and they see these beautiful neighborhoods that have been overlooked for so many years. And here's the opportunity to get in when things are changing for the better. But um, I think it's been good that people have been turning their their eye towards our 
you know, long-standing residents because, it, you know, it's not the same neighborhood without them, and um, it's important to protect um, everyone's place, not just in Beasley, but all of downtown. Uh, as this moves on, and, and let's assume that everything goes according to Hoyle here, and, and you get the committee on side with this and council mm. uh, this Wednesday approves, uh, how soon can you actually, well, it's, it's a little chilly yet, but I mean, it'd be kind of nice to have this up for springtime. Uh, that's a good question. I would love to see it move ahead quickly. We are definitely prepared at the association to sit down with the city as soon as they're, uh, you know, as soon as they're enabled to, to do that. I've already had a number of emails exchanged with some city staff, and uh, Jason Thorne has also been very uh, helpful in starting to get this thing rolling. So we're ready to go. It's uh, the biggest step is going to be applying for that grant to the McNally Foundation, and um, you know, once we sort of get the okay from council to go ahead and do that, we'll be sitting down and working as quickly as we can. Because you're right, it'd be certainly nice to see some benches in a little parquette down in that area in time for the the nice weather and the longer uh, hours of the sun. So, And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what are the long-term plans? Now, I know that eventually that's going to be green space. It is going to be a park, but do you have any indication at all as to how quickly they can move on that? Well, we keep hearing 2018 um, is the time for the design to start. Uh, we, in June last year, uh, the BNA sent a letter to our councillor, Jason Farr, uh, you know, reiterating again that we think now is the time to start expropriating or purchasing the other properties on that land. I think there's one or two parcels, or one or two they need to buy to complete the parcel. So before uh, the, the rising cost of property uh, sort of <laughs> adds another dent to the Hamilton taxpayer, you might as well start moving on that, and we're hoping that they will. I understand there's also an investigation going on there um, currently about the um, uh, the club there. So, I mean, there's, I guess, a, a certain number of steps that they have to go through. But uh, I, we've been assured time and time again that next year the design work will start, that uh, hopefully the expropriations will take place if any are necessary. Hopefully it'll just be a, a matter of purchasing the land from the uh, owners. And, um, you know, within a year or so of that, and perhaps they'd actually be starting to, to, to work on the park. I mean, we're used to holding our breath, and, and we have seen a number of great improvements at Parks and Beasley. So um, I think we want to keep their feet to the fire, but uh, everyone's got their eye on the, the long-term vision, which is, uh, you know, a nice, beautiful park and in a central part of the city that uh, borders on quite a bit of... Uh, quite a bit of our tourist areas. So, Well, we have had discussions, and, and, and again, I'll go back to when I was on council, but even subsequent to that on this program for many times, uh, when I look at downtown redevelopment, I've always looked at King William Street as a street with immense potential. Oh, yes. And we've always kind of maintained, if we can get Lister Block at one end and, and get that going, and then, of course, Theater Aquarius is the other anchor at the other side, there is so much potential for infill, and you've already seen that with some of the restaurants that have come in there uh, just a block away from the area that we're talking about now. But this parcel of land that you're talking about, that's key to that redevelopment, isn't it, to get that cleaned up and get that moving forward? I think so. Like I said, that one developer who's already purchased a plot, I mean, so this is speculative. They just bought a plot of land about a block away from that, and it's only going to be a matter of time. I mean, currently, uh, <laughs> another group of people who don't really love talking to the BNA or to anyone really are the owners of those parking lots, especially around John and Wilson. I mean, for them, it's just a cash cow. It just is money pouring into their pockets for very little overhead. But uh, I think at some point there's going to be that uh, realization that that is worth a whole lot more as a place for people to live or to work and um, and then to do business. So um, I, I'm hoping that this park is one of those magnets that draws the development in a you know, a sort of area that has been traditionally overlooked. Like I said, I mean, that's a, a big area where uh, our industrial past is buried under asphalt, and it certainly would be great to see some new uh, roots uh, grow and then uh, spring up in some uh, beautiful developments. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.